I think I'm back on. All right, there we go. Okay, so uh, I got assigned this chapter. Uh, God's Word is Final. I looked at the title. I'm like, well, this is going to be a real short lesson. Uh, and then I did my outline, went back, uh, reread the chapter last night, and realized I'd gone off on a tangent. We'll hit on some of the stuff that uh, DeYoung touches on in his book, and we'll circle around those themes a lot. But uh, I commend the chapter to you. It was a good chapter. Um, if you haven't read it, I, I suggest it. But uh, he focuses on a lot of issues um, that you're going to face practically, and I don't want to say those aren't important. And like I said, we'll get to themes around those as well. Uh, but whenever I was looking at this, the sort of the thought came to my mind of, um, we understand this concept, but what is it that underlies this, this, this principle of finality of God's word? So I want to look at it in a give you a quick outline of where we're going to go. We'll open in prayer and get started. So what does the young mean by this, the, the statement God's word is final? What's the authority that he cites to for this? What underlies the final authority of God's word, which might seem like a similar question to first. It is, it is similar, but slightly different. What are the implications of this? What should our response be to it? And then kind of wrap up. So let us open with prayer. Lord, we give you thanks this day. We thank you for the time we share. We thank you for um, the fellowship that we, um, we have amongst one another and with you. And Lord, we thank you for your word, that your word is, um, has been given to us, that it might shape us, that it might guide us, that it might serve to bring us closer to you. May we give it its due weight and authority. May we understand what it is, what it represents, that it is not... Um, merely a book of sayings is not merely a book of suggestions, but it represents your living and active word and your authority. So I pray that as we, we dive into this today, that, uh, that we might uh, come to this with our hearts open and ready to receive your word. And uh, may we leave with confidence, knowing that it is enough to say, thus saith the Lord, because Ultimately, it is not the word of man, but the word of God. Say and ask these things in your name. So, what does uh, De Young mean by God's word is final? I know I was talking with Blake about this, and, and he, he mentioned a, a question. He said, hey, is, are we talking the canon? Is the canon closed? Or are we talking something else? De Young's getting at something else, actually. And actually, it's the end of the chapter where he brings this up. And he... he phrases it this way. He phrases the, the idea of God's word as finals, the idea of giving God's word to scripture, the last word. So it's not just a concept of, of the closed canon, though we do affirm that, but it is about saying that ultimately when it comes down to it, those things that we claim and assert to be true rest not on our own reason, our own understanding, that which we see outside of ourselves. They do rest outside of ourselves, but they rest on the authority of God's word. It also underlies the concept of not accepting the things that Scripture denies and not missing what Scripture affirms. Those are going to loop in with other, other principles of the Scripture, you know, the sufficiency and the adequacy of, of Scripture. But it also plays a part here, whereby if Scripture speaks to something, and we'll get into this later in more depth, then that is the word that we must accept. If Scripture gives us instructions on something, we can't say otherwise. If it denies something explicitly, we can't disagree or say otherwise. 
So that's what he's getting at, the finality of God's word. It's almost the, the same concept of when your child comes to you and asks, you know, why must I do this? And I, I, I try not to do this, but sometimes the quickest response is because I said so. Um, the reason I try to provide a better explanation is because my word is ultimately not final. Yeah. God can say that, though. I mean, and we'll get into, into why he can say that. But it is, as I said earlier, it is enough to say, thus saith the Lord. And ultimately, whenever you get down to it, any statement, any position of authority or morality or reason that anyone makes in the church, outside of the church, they're going to ultimately point outside of themselves to some source of authority. So none of us can get away from it. The atheist, the agnostic, the secular humanist is going to claim that they can, but really drive down on their points, and they're not going to be able to support what they're saying by appealing to something that is not external to themselves. They always have to go external. And when you press them on that, they, they have to concede that they're going somewhere else. Now, they, they, might refuse, they might refuse to concede, but they're being unreasonable at that point. And so for the Christian, when we're pressed on a point, and this is something that, that was really edifying to me in, in putting this together, it's, it's a recollection that it is not wrong for us, and I think it's even proper for us, to quickly move past trying to justify things without appealing to Scripture. Because ultimately, that's what we're going to go anyways. So might as well go there early. Uh, the world might not like it. Uh, they might want us to appeal to reason and logic and other evidences as well. Those are important. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, if we're taking God's word as final, we're going to get to the point where we're going to appeal to Scripture and say, thus saith the Lord. So let's get there sooner rather than later. So what does DeYoung point to? Um, whenever he is uh, drawing this concept out. He goes to Acts 17 to start. Um, uh, and I'm going to mention a, a sermon that Bodhi Bauckham gives. It's one of his, I think it's one of his regular, within his sort of litany of sermons that he gives when he has to go, uh, or when he chooses and accepts the opportunity to go preach elsewhere, but it's on why he believes the Bible. And he mentions a quote from Spurgeon about, well, first he's talking about, well, people are saying, why are you going to go to the scriptures to defend this concept of the finality of God's word? He says, I'm not defending scripture. Scripture needs no defense. I'm defending my position. So why does DeYoung go to Acts 17? The Acts 17 story is the account of the Thessalonians and the Bereans. And so we're actually just going to read, read that real quickly. It's a, not terribly long, but we'll go ahead and get started there. Because it does illustrate for us the dichotomy between those who are going to reject the authority of God's word and look to something outside, and those who are going to accept the authority of word and rely on it as their basis of, um, of authority. So, Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through, maybe I shouldn't have started verse 1, Amphilopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and providing and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews, not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city's authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed, with not a few Greeks, women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also, they also came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and then received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. So this sets up the difference, the two, two camps, as it were, and you're going to fall into one of these two camps, unfortunately. Well, not fortunately. Fortunately for us, you fall into one of these two camps. There's not a middle path that might lie between. Um, liberal theologians might say there is. Uh, De Young talks about that in his, uh, in his book, in the chapter. Uh, I soundly reject the liberal theologian position that you can somehow walk a middle path. But the two camps are, are you going to hear what is said and turn to Scripture as your source of authority for confirming or disaffirming what is said? Or are you going to react as the Thessalonians did and look to something outside of themselves? So he points to Acts 17. I think there are some other examples um, that we can look to in Scripture that point to Scripture's high view of Scripture. And not just Scripture's high view of Scripture, but the Apostles' and Christ's high view of Scripture. So the one that comes to mind to me is the rich man is Lazarus. This is the parable that Christ gave the rich man who died and went to Hades, looks up and sees Lazarus, the beggar at his door, who is sitting at the table of, I think it's the table of Abraham is the phrase that is used, and he requests that Lazarus be sent back to talk to his brothers and to bring to them the word and the warning. And the response is, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So again, and this is something that, that we'll look at later, but we're looking at this concept of what is the authority of Scripture and what does it stand, in a sense, above? And the point here, at least one of the points here, is you see this sign, this wonder of a dead rising, and what does Christ point to? He points first to the Word. He points to Moses and the prophets and says that they're not going to hear the Word and if they're not going to submit to that word, then what gives you any confidence that this is going to make a difference? And then also, and this is a, I, I recommend this, this sermon by Vodi Bakum. You can find it easily. Uh, it's, he's probably given it 
more times than I can count, but you can YouTube it. But this is his text that he draws from when he talks about why he believes the Bible. And there's a passage in 2 Peter. It's in uh, verse, or chapter 1. I'm going to uh, read a portion out of 16 through 21. But the point is, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to you, which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in the dark place. The context of this statement is he is just previously, as part of that passage, mentioned that they, that they, meaning Peter, John, and James, were witnesses of his glory on the mountain. So Peter's talking about, hey, wait a minute, I was a witness of the transfiguration, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And so he, as proof of his authority, in a sense, he references his eyewitness account of the transfiguration, but then immediately turns again to Scripture. So again, a high view of Scripture. Also, Psalm 19, this is a passage de Young references when he talks about the two books, the book of general revelation, that is creation, and the book of specific revelation, that is the Word. And the first six verses discuss the general revelation. We're all familiar with them. The heavens declare the glory of God. But then you drop down to verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More are they to be desired than gold. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And then Psalm 119. Um, if I were to read that, we would not do anything else. So... I just commend that chapter to you. So, Scripture clearly outlines a high view of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And the Acts 17 account pretty clearly fleshes that out. The Bereans received the word with gladness and then immediately studied the Scriptures daily to confirm what they had heard. They, here comes Paul, an apostle, with the authority of an apostle. I'm not sure what signs and wonders he might have been performed by him or by his, uh, his colleagues at Berea. But what the Bereans did is they turned back to the word to confirm the word that was being proclaimed to them. So, Scripture clearly has that high view of Scripture itself. But I want to think back and drop a low, a level below that. Go to this third point. What underlies the final authority of God's word? Because it's enough to say that God's word is, is it enough to say that God's word is final? Um, people would disagree. Uh, there are other quote-unquote holy books that are out there. The Muslim would disagree. The Mormon would disagree. They would look at our Bible and say it's a corrupt version, um, that they have the true version, and also the Book of Mormon that needs to be appended to it. Um, so the um, Jews would disagree with respect to the New Testament. So what underlies the authority of, of God's word? And why can we say with confidence that it is final, that it is true? And so we go, I'm going to go to two places. Um, I'm open to discussion on what else you might see as as support for this concept of the authority of God's word and the finality of God's word. 
But one is going to be, well, actually, I said three places in my notes. Uh, the self-evidence of Scripture. Uh, and again, I recommend you the Vody Bauckham sermon. I won't go into all of his points. But the assertion he makes is, why does he believe the Bible is true? And I want to say his answer is, it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And they testify to supernatural events that are in fulfillment of specific prophecies, which is a long way of saying, hey, wait a minute, we've got a book written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, 40-ish, and three continents, multiple languages, I'm going to say there's three, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, there's internal consistency. Oh, by the way, you have the book of Acts, which is written by eyewitnesses or from the testimony accounts of eyewitnesses. You have Paul, who's calling out specific people on specific streets in his epistles. And you could go to that street, go to that time in his epistles, and find that person and talk to him. It's historical, meaning there's, there's documentation, there's evidence to support the historical narrative. Also, unlike every other document from antiquity, the Bible is the most supported in terms of the number of copies and documents and the time and closeness and proximity of them. Uh, if you look at other ancient documents, I mean, you've got hundreds of years gaps between when the original was penned and when our earliest copy is. With scripture, it's decades in some instances. So we're not looking at, you know, centuries-long gaps. You're looking at uh, things like, hey, you've got 20,000 copies or partial copies of the text of the New Testament. There's great external evidence for why we can rely on these documents that we see as being accurate. And then within the documents, what do we see? Well, we see things that support their veracity. We see calling out of specific eyewitnesses. We see testimony of things that happen that we can look to in other sources and say, yeah, that, you know, the historicity of Christ is an established fact. Seculars, if they're honest, accept that and recognize that the crucifixion of Christ is also a historical fact that is also accepted, as is the accounts of the resurrection. They deny them as being true, but they have to acknowledge that the accounts are, in fact, valid, that the accounts were made. So there's self-evidence within the scriptures that point to their own authenticity. But beyond that... What does the Bible itself say about, or what, where else in the Bible can we go to these concepts of, of why it is that we should give it heed? Um, I want to point to two. One is God as creator. Uh, Romans 9 is a passage I turn to a lot on the authority of God. Uh, this concept of, of the potter and the clay, the maker and the molder. And there's that dialogue or that, that hypothetical dialogue that Paul gives of, you know, you created me thus, how therefore can you say I'm responsible? So that's in Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will the molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor and one for dishonor. So it doesn't 
speak directly to the authority of God's word, but it speaks to God's authority. What is the basis of God's authority over us? We stand here and we think, I'm an autonomous, self-sufficient human being, and that's, can, in a sense, couldn't be further from the truth. I'm not autonomous. I'm not self-sufficient. And I actually had a, somebody make a reference one time that says, even using the word being is, in a sense, deceptive because, like I said, we are not self-sufficient. We do not exist. I am not an I am. I am a created entity. Created in the image of God, we are distinct from the rest of creation. But that does not negate the fact that I am created. The only I am is God, and he is the creator of all else. And by virtue of his authority, as, by virtue of his position as creator, he has authority over that which he creates. So we go to Job. Same concept. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. And you make it known to me. And then he goes on for three chapters. And here's some, where were you when I lay the foundation of the earth? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Who's put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? And then chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job, wisely, I would say, in his response, and the Lord answered to the Lord, the Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, you will make it known to me. I had heard I had heard you by the hearing of ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So where does God's authority come from? God points back to his authority as the creator for why he has power, why he can speak with authority. So that's where God directs us. So the self-evidence of scripture, God is creator. These are two bases we can point to for why the book is authoritative. The last one I want to go to is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, this one is a bit of a, I don't want to say a tangent, it's not. It doesn't, I wouldn't say it directly goes to the authority of God's word, but I believe that the authority of God's word is an implication that rises out of it. And why do I say that? Paul points to the death, burial, and resurrection as that which is the purpose of his ministry and that which without his ministry has no purpose and is foolishness. What does he mean by that? So in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ has not been raised either. But if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. So again, even if God's word is authoritative, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then what's the point of all this? It's like, okay, thank, you, thank you, Lord, for giving us your, your authoritative word that I, in my human frailty, am incapable of following and incapable of being made right with you. Um, so what's the point? But if he has been raised from the dead... And this is in verse 20 and 20 through 20, 24 through 25. But if now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. 
those who have fallen asleep. Then the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for it is necessary for him to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But it is true, Christ raised from the dead. Because it is true, we know that he has risen in power, and in the future, he will come and reign in power. That's true. Then we ought to give his word due consideration and due authority. Because in the end, it doesn't matter what human authorities or other, quote-unquote, places of authority say unto us, because at the end they'll be put to nothing, and he has dust. So, self-evidence of Scripture, God's role as creator, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I want to stop and look at the crowd for comments, questions. I see lots of smiling faces. That's good, but I've talked for a while. Let's let somebody else talk. When y'all hear the, 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 the claim God's word is final, what, what, what does that immediately bring to mind? Yeah. And he also, he, he jumps in and compares the, the Westminster to the Catholics view of it as well. Um, I would say Catholics aren't on the full, fully over into the theologian, the liberal theologian side, but they would give uh, undue and improper weight and authority to church council. I see young faces here. I might start calling on young faces. School just started back up. Y'all, 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 y'all need to practice. Whatever y'all think of uh, the, the self-evidence of, of Scripture or where Scripture points to itself as authoritative, are there any other passages that come to mind? Yeah. And, I mean, that's a, that brings to mind a point that Ken made, I want to say, last week about the difference between the distance between us and an axe is less than the distance between us and God in the sense of you, we, we hear a claim like that. If I were to say I'm going to swear by myself because there's none greater, that would be insane, be mad, and be arrogant. For God to do it, it's just true. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks about the, what, he, what he referred to as the two books, um, two books of Revelation in, in, in the chapter, and what he's referencing there is what we term is the general revelation of God and then the specific revelation of God. And he, he is helping us struggle through that point of what, what do we do when we encounter that which appears or seems to be inconsistent between the two books? How do we reconcile the inconsistencies? Um, and we'll talk about that for a moment. He, he, he notes that we can always be reading our Bible wrongly. That's, we don't claim to have perfect knowledge and understanding of, of, of the meaning of Scripture. Um, we do have, however, uh, for the New Testament, 2,000 years of church history helping to guide us and structure. Um, uh, I mean, that's why I think a departure from orthodoxy needs to be carefully considered. Um, if the church has been in relative agreement on a point for a long, long time, that doesn't make the church right, per se, but it does make, in my opinion, it does mean it sh- we should exercise some caution before we depart from orthodoxy. Um, but uh, I was uh, actually listening to a, um, a, a teaching course series on its American history. But they're talking about the, the 
the rise of liberal theology in the United States. And they pointed to, to Darwin and his origin of species as one of the real breaking points of the American church between fundamentalism and liberal theology. And the point being, wait a minute, there's, there arose a school of thought based off of observations in nature that seemed to be inconsistent with the scriptural narratives. How do we reconcile these things? And uh, the, the response of the liberal theologian was to depart from aspects of Scripture or depart from orthodox understanding of the interpretation of Scripture or the understanding of Scripture. Uh, De Young's point is, wait a minute, we, we have God's final word. God's not changing. He is creator. Therefore, that which he says is true and right. And then we have our observations of, of nature that uh, change over time. Uh, anyone who works in any field dealing with science understands this better than us, uh, better than most, in the sense of the origin of the species as a theory. I, my recollection is that it's largely been rejected in favor of newer versions and understandings of the evolutionary theory. Uh, so it's like wait, wait, the thing that you, you look back to as kind of the breaking point for this, you don't even really accept a lot of those points anymore. You're shifting. You they'd say, oh, we're just our, our knowledge is growing. It's like, but but what is it going to be in five, ten, fifteen, twenty years from now? How long um, was there a misunderstanding of the nature of the solar system? And Galileo comes along and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, like this isn't right, and it shifted. So. Uh, his point is, well, why do we give up confidence in the final word of God when we have this evidence and support for it in favor of something that changes pretty frequently? Um, and especially on a point, uh, it, it, the, the origin of the species is a, is a big one, of course, because it directly goes against the creation narrative. Um, another one that, that kind of boggles my mind sometimes when people look to logic and reason as their source of, of authority, and they reject scripture because of it. Logic and reason has the same fundamental problem that science does in that it's not a fully developed system of thought. It's, not, it's, it's better than it used to be, but doesn't mean that it's, it's, a, it's a system that developed over time. I mean, I remember I took logic, and it's very mathematical in its approach, but it's a system that developed over time and has had to go through changes and shifts as a system. But if you do logic at its very base core, what you remember and have to recognize is it, your output is only as good as your input. Your inputs will determine what your output is. If A is the same as B, then B is the same as A. But what are A and B? If A and B are wrong, then your system falls apart. Then the logical proof you just went through is without value. And so again, even those who are relying on logic have to input something into that. If you're going to say, well, this is not reasonable. Reasonable based off of what? Based off of what input? What is your, what is your underlying presupposition or premise that makes you come to the conclusion this is unreasonable? People would say, oh, it's unreasonable that God would... And this is the point Paul makes. It's unreasonable that God would expect me, expect this of me when he created me thus. And it's like, well, Paul's response is you're using the wrong input. The input being, who are you 
to talk back to God. God can do with you what he wants. Why? Because he's creator. Those are the right inputs. You came to the wrong conclusion because you had the wrong inputs. So, again, when you're looking at things outside and what uh, the world and liberal theologians are going to do, you can press them on these things because they might claim as, oh, you're being unreasonable. Unreasonable based on what? You claim to be a Christ follower, then take me to the scriptures. If you can't take me to the scriptures and argue from the scriptures, I'm, then I'm going to give you no consideration in your argument. Yes? And I mean, it's a recalling as a sort of fundamental starting point that fallen nature aspect is, is I think, critical for our application of this doctrine as, as people who are seeking to be faithful to God's word because we have to be aware and cognizant of our tendency to put, to put in the wrong inputs. And those, whether those are wrong inputs are pride or the result, result of pride, the result of um, context and circumstances in which we were brought up and raised, as an American, um, I mean, this is something that I have to struggle against. I had a bit of a more of a libertarian leaning in my youth based off of, you know, concepts that I was brought up thinking about the autonomy of self that is kind of prevalent within American society. You know, what is this, uh, this understanding of the authority of oneself and that, that famous statement, you know, the, the, the power of the government is derived from the just consent of the people. It's like, what? Is that a biblical statement? Well, you, I mean, look historically, who wrote that one? It was Thomas Jefferson, who was not a Christian. Or I, I don't believe he was. My understanding is he wasn't. I don't think the evidence points to him being one. But just that statement within itself, what does Scripture speak to about the authority of government? That doesn't point to the people and the consent of the people as the authority of government. It points to God and his authority that he has granted unto the government. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, there's a point to Young made. You know, Christ can, can, can illustrate through the, villi- uh, the, the lilies of the valley, but uh, it is written defeats the devil. It's like, oh, yeah, let's, let's Let's, let's talk about that. Or uh, the one I, uh, I mean, Christ quoted scripture all throughout, but another example of, of sort of that dichotomy is, is uh, the, the day of Pentecost. We have the disciples speaking in tongues that they do not know to the people in their own languages. And, of course, you know, they have the whole exchange about being drunk or not. Um, but here is a great sign and wonder, and where does Peter immediately go? immediately goes back to the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets for, again, his authority for what's going on. Um, so yeah, signs and wonders uh, unaccompanied by scripture. I don't think there's any good examples in scripture of, of where they're not going to present the sign and wonder as the basis of their authority to speak, but then not, again, turn back and rely on what has already been disclosed, what has already been given. And uh, that, is a, that is a critical point to remember. So what are some of the implications of this? Uh, I want to talk a minute about the world um, and to the extent that it also applies to us and our own fallen frailty. Um, it's important. The world kind of lives in this dual di- 
dual contradiction. Um, one, they clearly see the power and authority of God. Scripture makes that definite. They, they would reject it, but yeah, they're without excuse. That's the, the term that's used in Romans. They, they clearly know um, both from that which is revealed in Scripture, or sorry, revealed in creation, and that which is um, revealed in their own conscience. Uh, oh, goodness. I didn't bring my catechism with me, but there's a catechism question. Uh, how may we know there is a God? The light of nature and man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God. They cannot avoid it. It's, in, it's inescapable that there, there's a God, and they refuse to accept it, but they're without excuse. Yet, um, they reject that authority, but think about how they actually live. One, they live in a reliance on the principles of God's authority, that which he has laid out for us in Scripture, being true and working. What do I mean by that? You, how, how often do we hear them call out that something is unjust and then point to, and this is, this is especially true, or I don't know if it's especially true, but it's definitely true in our current society. We have a society that comes out of Judeo-Christian tradition and context, and they want to now depart from it, yet still rest on the foundation of that principle, the foundations that are set forth in Scripture about what is justice, what is righteousness, what is truth. They want the benefits without having any of the obligations, and really they only want the benefits insofar as it benefits them. Um, and then any time it comes over against them and says, now you, you went too far, they want to reject that. Uh, Machen in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, describes it this way. Uh, and he, he, he describes it in the context of a liberal theologian. So I went to him more for the liberal theologian aspect. But he, he points it this way. The impression is someone is sometimes produced that the modern liberal substitutes for the authority of the Bible the authority, the authority of Christ, which I think we still, we, we are starting to hear some in, uh, in evangelicalism as well, where people would point to, well, I, 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 I'm just a Christ follower. Whoa. That's a dangerous statement to make. Um, it is, you, you better be a Christ follower, but a Christ follower by whose definition? Who, what definition and knowledge of Christ are you pointing to? He cannot accept, he says, what he regards as the perverse moral teachings of the Old Testament or the sophisticated arguments of Paul. But he regards himself as being the true Christian because rejecting the rest of the Bible, he depends on Jesus alone. That sounds like a fine statement. I'm just resting in Jesus alone and his salvation and his grace. Yeah. Machen describes it this way. The truth is the life purpose of Jesus discovered by modern liberalism is not the life purpose of the real Jesus but merely represents those elements in the teaching of Jesus, isolated and misinterpreted, which happens to agree with the modern program. It is not Jesus, then, who is the real authority, but the modern principle by which the selection within Jesus, this recorded teaching, has been made. So they just want to pick and choose. They will follow Jesus insofar as that which Jesus taught already accords with that which they want to believe. And so in that case, who is their real authority? Their real authority is themselves. If I'm only going to follow you insofar as I agree with what you're doing, I've not submitted myself to your authority. I'm just merely putting you up as a figurehead. So he was pointing that in the context of, a, of the liberal theologian. I want to say the world does similar things. They want to point to, like I said, the, the benefits of justice, the benefits of righteousness and morality, and the 
the historic underlay and foundation of that is the Judeo-Christian tradition. But they want to only accept it insofar as it accords with what they already want to do or with what th that which benefits them. Uh, but this concept of rejecting the scriptures and falling only after Jesus, it's gotten to a point now where I think we, we can be critical and consider um, and consider the question whether those who would do that are really part of the church. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a somewhat potentially controversial statement, somewhat of a bold statement, I know. And I don't make it uh, flippantly. It's a sober question. But if you're going to deny the authority of Scripture, then what do we even have to talk about? And on whose authority are you proclaiming yourself a church or proclaiming yourself to be among the body of believers? If I can't come to you and reason from Scripture, if we can't come and go back to Scripture, if we don't have a disagreement on what Scripture teaches and instructs us to do, it better be out of Scripture. And if you're going to reject or pick piecemeal from Scripture and then draw on other things that a liberal theologian would, I am going to probably treat you as a Gentile, frankly. I mean, like I, at that point, what do, I, 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 I feel like at that point we're at an impasse in terms of determining what we should do based on Scripture, because you won't accept it as authority. You have to come to the point of accepting its authority before we can have any, even have the discussion. And uh, if, if you're rejecting his authority, I'm going to question whether you accept Christ as your authority, because, you know, as Machen pointed out, Christ saw the Scripture as his authority. When he was questioned about, well, how, on what basis do you do these, do you do these things? Well, the testimony of Scripture is one of the things he pointed to. Uh, and so if you're not going to accept that which Christ accepted as authoritative, I'm going to question whether you accept Christ as your authority. Um, so, that, like I said, it's a sober question. It's not one that is flippant, but it is one that I think needs to be considered, not just considered outside, but it needs to be taken and parts of our thinking needs to be paired off if, it's, if it falls into that sort of sort of realm of I'm going to look to scripture or look to things outside of scripture for my authority. If, if I'm getting to that ground, then that, that calls for me to be, to be conformed more so to the image of Christ through the word. So I made a, what I think is a somewhat controversial statement and I see a lot of thinking faces. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily controversial. Well, it, I agree with it. I, I made it. Made the statement. <laughs> that being said, I mean, I am calling for the consideration of whether somebody who claims to be Christ follower is actually. I mean, that's, that's a sober question. And I think there are going to be people who are truly believers who don't have a current good understanding of this doctrine. And so, like, as, if someone comes to you and says, well, what, what, this, that, and the other, we do that ourselves. We have to be, be um, self-reflective on that point. I'm going to do that all the time. We need to work towards conforming ourselves to Christ more and more. So it's, it's more along those lines of, of being sober in our application of that concept. Is it somebody who's fixed on that position or is it somebody who in their fallenness has not yet come to being, being brought in line with Scripture in that way? So 
what are the implications for the church? Uh, God's word stands above our own preferences and opinions. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, I know whenever I first started really digging into and learning about the doctrines of grace, I did not like them. Uh, I felt that I had to, I felt that God needed to be defended against the attacks that would be lodged against him about you're being unjust, you're being unkind, you're being unmerciful, you're being this, that, and the other. Uh, God needs no defense, and you kind of have to get used to that. Uh, he does that which he will do. Um, I might think that it's in my human frailty. I might disagree with it. Uh, uh, that's something that should be repented of. Uh, and doesn't matter whether I like it or not. If it's true, it's true. And my personal preference and opinion doesn't, uh, doesn't matter. God's word stands above the reason as the world have supplied. I don't want to say that reason should be abandoned. Uh, reason is important. We're going to come to the word, and it's not always easy. In fact, it's often not easy. Um, one of the things that DeYoung talked about is the mystery of the word. There are things in there that are going to, one, be hard. Uh, Peter talks about how some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. I agree with you, Peter. Thank you for pointing it out. Thank you for putting that the canon. Dear Lord, uh, there's also going to be things that are mysterious, that which are not revealed in Scripture. There are the things of God that he has chosen not to reveal unto us, and therefore we aren't going to know on this side of heaven. We might not know immediately on the other side of heaven. Um, I don't know if God's ever going to reveal those unto us. We'll, we'll see. I, I don't know. But we, uh, yes. Yeah, and, I, it, and it seems at a certain point to be somewhat circular in the sense of, well, I have to use my reason to discern what God says in Scripture about what inputs I should put on this. And it's true. Like we have to, but that, that comes back to the, the how do we know that which is, how do we know the hard things in Scripture? By looking at that which is clear in Scripture. The confessions um, point to that and say, hey, what is the rule for interpreting Scripture? Other Scripture. That which is clear in Scripture is your rule for that which is not clear in Scripture. Uh, and so, and this is a, we'll jump to this point because we only have a few more, few more minutes. And this is a, sort of the final wrap-up point is, okay, we have what I would point to as sort of two camps in the church of what do we take from Scripture and how do we apply it in our lives? And there's going to be some realms, there's going to be realms of that which is given to us as clear theology or as theology, and there's going to be things that are easier and harder within there. That which is easy is usually pretty evident and plainly laid out in Scripture, and it, it does require use of reason to read and understand it, but it's a pretty fundamental base-level thing about the fallen nature of man, about God's position as what is God, what does he require of us. He states those things pretty, pretty plainly then we take from that and we reason out harder things. And there's going to be disagreement. There's disagreement within this room about points of doctrine. Um, and there's, there's room for disagreement. And I, when I use the word room, I don't mean that both positions are potentially right because they aren't. One is right, one is wrong, or neither is right. But we recognize that they're not always clear. We went through that study on um, the, the three levels of theology is kind of how it's broken out about is this a primary point of importance, secondary, tertiary? 
But within that, we can't just accept, although they just have a different theological position, that has to be within the confines of Scripture. If you have a theological position that runs contrary to Scripture in some pretty fundamental, clear way, then I would say you fall outside the confines of that. And you're now no longer within what I would say is acceptable differences. You're now into the realm of heresy or potentially heresy. Uh, so, you, you know, the Arian concept of, you know, what is the nature of Christ? Those sorts of things run contrary to Scripture. There's not room for reasonable disagreement on those. Uh, similarly, there's going to be things that within the church are open to Christian liberty, whereby there is not really a directive given to us on how to do these things. But how does God's word play into this on our authority? One, I would say, is again, it has to be within the confines of Scripture. Christian liberty goes only so far as Scripture permits it. Therefore, we have to know what the bounds are. And two, even if there is liberty in an area, it does not mean that Scripture does not provide instruction or direction or counsel on how I ought to exercise my Christian liberty. I'm going to use an example. It seems it's the one that just came to my mind, which was, at what time in my life is it appropriate to retire from my career and pursue something else? I would say that Scripture does not provide a clear answer on that. I would say that Scripture does provide pretty clear counsel and wisdom on making that decision. So, there's Christian liberty on questions, but we better be turning to Scripture for counsel on how to exercise that Christian liberty. So, we have about two minutes, so we've got time for a couple more questions before I wrap up. Yes? I have nothing. Uh, I would have to defer to. I haven't. I I got this chapter and then was instructed that I was teaching this chapter and had to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I read chapter five, but I've not read the others yet. <laughs> yeah, and that and this is this is underlying the authority of scripture. I think is, of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the illumination of the Word and are conforming to that Word. Um, I, and uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine about the, the, the view of the Charismatics about, I would say they even limit or pigeonhole the Holy Spirit into this one particular camp, which, as I think Scripture points out, they put them into the camp of signs and wonders and miracles. And they would say, we diminish the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit by saying those are no longer in continuation. I, like, no, I would say you diminish it because Scripture points out that the word stands in authority over the signs, wonders, and miracles. And in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a massive part of that is the illumination of the word of the Holy, to, the, to the believer and the conforming of us to that word. And it's like, well, it's like you know, the, the Holy Spirit and the the Word of God work in lockstep with one another um, in our in our lives, um, and I think that, and it, it comes along as well as in our evangelism, you know, in giving us confidence in not trying to reason people into the kingdom. We're not going to succeed because the eye of the unbeliever is blinded. What do we do? We proclaim the Word with confidence that the Spirit will bring to Christ that which the Father has called, 
And so we don't rely on our own reasoning skills to say, oh, well, I, need to, I need to make this palatable to you. I need to convince you of its rightness. I proclaim to you the word, and the spirit brings that word alive in them. I'm not, that's not my job. My job is to proclaim the word. And knowing that, I can do it with confidence because now I know I'm not relying on myself to bring things outside of it. I'm, not, I'm frankly, all I'm doing is relaying something that's already outside of myself. Like I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you God's word, and then the Spirit will give you God's word again. Um, yeah, yeah. So I want to circle back, wrap up kind of the overarching point, which is confidence. That confidence we should have in thus saith the Lord. And why that's not a trite or simple statement or a cop-out. Ultimately, that's where we get to. Um, and when I think about that, when I think about God's word being final, our submission to that, that, that principle and that truth, I think back to Martin Luther and his statement of the Diet of the Worms, which I'm just going to read. Because I think it's a good summation of this point and of, of the confidence that we should have in the word and also our submission unto it. So his, his, this is his answer in response to whether he was going to recant and deny that which he had written. Uh, Since your most serene majesties and your highnesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give you one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or the Council, because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even inconsistency with themselves. If, then, I am not convinced by the proof from the Holy Scripture or by cogent reason, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will reject anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. So, with that being said, God help us all, and we are dismissed.